This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Peter Cho, the creative director and co-owner of Jack Mason Watches. Peter, welcome. Thank you, Ariel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, again, I like to tell everyone a little bit at the beginning of the show, you know, why is this guest here? What is it that you're going to learn from them? Jack Mason is an interesting entrepreneurial endeavor, which sort of is a merger between the worlds of sort of internet uh, item popularity. I'll explain what that means. Uh, fashion, watchmaking, um, and a little bit of Americana. And over the last several years, we've seen this emergence to fill a lot of market voids of, we'll just call them affordable watches that appeal to a mainstream, sort of like they come a little bit from the world of enthusiasts, but they're sort of like a mass market appeal. And particularly in America, some of the better ones are excelling not not just in the areas of making you know products that are affordable, but doing good marketing, having a good presentation. Uh, in other words, the stuff that uh, some of the European brands actually tend to be very poor at. So, um, uh, Peter, what do you think about that introduction? Oh, I think that's great. Is that is that accurate? Would that sort of define a little bit what you've been trying to do? Because as you know, one of the uh-huh. most difficult things in the space is to categorize a watch brand, right? Do you do right. it by style, price, the number of watches they make per year, who they make watches for? It's like yeah. really difficult. So even in this, even in the industry, we like kind of like stumble over our own words, just trying to explain like how we categorize a company. Yeah, no, exactly. Absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, just, through the different people that I've spoken with who ask, Hey, you know, who, who's your customer? Who are you trying to target? Um, who, you know, who's buying your stuff? And really, uh, that, to be honest with you, that, that answer has changed, uh, numerous times, actually, you know, and I, I would say in, from the early days. So my background, I studied industrial design and out of, out of college, I uh, thought that I would be designing MP3 players, DVD players, uh, like every industrial design student uh, thought they would. And uh, it wasn't until I got my first job as a an associate watch designer um, at the Movado Group. And from I, I knew nothing about watches at that time. And when I first uh, joined that company, uh, it, it opened my eyes into a world that I didn't even know existed um, in terms of design. I did not know that something like that required the amount of attention to detail and the amount of parts that had to be thought and considered. And I, you know, going through various brands at that, at that company and then leaving that company and going to other companies like Fossil Group, that's when I knew that, um, okay, the market, the market is missing something. Right. Um, how, how can, how can, uh, these conglomerates own a space um, if a guy like me who knew nothing about watches can grow a passion for watches with a keen uh, sense for just good design, good product, um, mm-hmm. why doesn't that exist? And so, you know, back in 2015, myself and a few of my uh, my current business partners, uh, we decided to venture off and start uh, Jack Mason. And the name Jack Mason actually comes from one of our business partners. It's his son's name. Okay. Yeah, it's it's usually something like that. But you know, it's funny how like brands that are a person's name 
like are probably some of the most popular. Not like, of course, you have exceptions, Rolex and Omega. But for the most part, like successful brands are somebody's name. Uh, and I want, I've always wondered why that is. It's just something I've noticed. But I'm sure that when you started this, you and the team did a lot of these sort of like exercises where you're trying to like peel back what makes sense, what works, which would you invest in. A- am I right? Did you do that? Yes. Yes. Um, we did do that. Um, and, you know, to be honest with you, I think what, what needed to happen was uh, a couple of things. Have a strong brand name that was easy to remember. Uh, we knew we wanted to have an Americana brand. Um, and so uh, when we were just kind of uh, thinking about, um, you know, what, what the brand name should be, uh, our partner uh, was like, you know, I'd, I'd love to have something named after my son. And, um, well, what's the son's name? Jack, uh, middle name, Mason. That's it. That just felt so Americana. And we we stuck with it. And for some reason, it sounded like a name that uh, that you've heard before. And so we just kind of went with that. And then secondary, okay, the name is great, but, you know, if we're going to go out there and start a new brand, well, we don't have a name that we can depend on. And I think that was kind of, um, you know, knowing that we were entering a space that was uh, dominated, right, by the Michael Kors of the world, the, 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 the Hugo Bosses of the world, we really had, the product really needed to sell itself. And so that's where my sort of, uh, background really came into play of, okay, let's make a very well designed product, uh, that catered toward that customer. There's something that stood out in terms of, uh, uh, design and quality just at that level. You know, we can always, you can pump a product with all sorts of specs. Um, that's, that's sort of easy to do, but how do we bring it all together into a package that not only looks good, um, but also stands out from a classic sense because, again, back in 2015, it was very fashion-driven and there weren't a whole lot of uh, brands at that time that sort of paid attention to the iconic watches you know, of the past um, yeah. and, and actually do it in a way that felt, uh, felt like a quality product. So let's, let's, back, let's back up a little bit here because I want to sort of explore – some of the various facets here, you know, where you came from and, and sort of the starting the brand. We'll go into the products a little bit later. So, okay, so you said industrial design background. Again, that's where a lot of watch designers come from. And then you said you had experience uh, at the Fossil Group um, in working there, uh, again, in, in, in Texas, where you are. Talk a little bit about, you know, what you learned about watchmaking or watch design at all in industrial design school. And then when you started doing a little bit of it, was it a shock? Did you find it was easy? Was it harder than you expected? I think there's a lot of people out there that love the idea of designing watches or just generally curious about the backgrounds of the people who design them today. We've had a lot of watch designers on the show, and I've tried to show that there's sort of a strange, diverse set of backgrounds. But talk a little bit about those experiences of, of being in design school, watches, and then working at a company that made watches. Sure. Yeah, so, you know, in studying industrial design, I, I, I didn't know anything about watches and I had no training. It was, um, to be honest with you, it was a job that I just took and I went into it blindly. Uh, I had no history with it. Um, but when I took that job and started working with some of the senior designers, you know, it's to me, a watch at that time was so much about, Oh, it's just this accessory that you put on your wrist. 
and it just it just is right there um i didn't really consider how much uh form uh all the materials that you have to consider the size the comfortability of a watch that that was unknown to me and it wasn't until i had the opportunity i was very fortunate when i joined the movada group um as my first job uh they sent me to Le Chaudron in Switzerland, um, to their Swiss office. And I worked closely with some of their senior designers there. Uh, and they are the ones that opened my eyes into viewing watches as a piece of art. You got to explain this a little bit because this is such a fortunate thing. You know, you're this young designer, you know, and I think in school, probably they kind of make you feel like you can design anything. Like if you have these skills, you can approach anything. But I've heard a lot of times from people that, watches just utterly humble them if they want to make something nice. And there's a lot of people who, you know, they, they leave the school and then they go to a company, like I remember like MVMT that was, you know, later purchased by the Movado Group. And they'd had these designers with like very little actual experience who thought they were, you know, really well qualified, nothing against them, but like they truly didn't know what they didn't know. And most of their designs were, I'll call them derivative at, at, at best. And so it takes several layers of, I'll call it maturity and education before you ever get to the point of being able to do something original. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that, yes. And to be honest with you, when I first um, got into uh, into the field, yes, uh, my it, learning was creating derivatives. But it wasn't until I, I, I worked with the experienced uh, Swiss designers who was able to take a der- derivative and was able to teach me to view it in through a different lens. And like I said, as a piece of art. And what I mean by that is other things come into under other factors come into play, like light. Light was a huge thing that I, something that I learned. How does the light hit a surface? The finishing of a watch, the light, you know, light bounces differently on a brushed surface versus a polished surface. But then even within a brush surface, light hits it differently when it's vertically brushed versus radial brushed. You know, and the shadow play, you know, when the, be- if a bezel overhangs the side of a case, what happens then? The purport, it really came down to understanding the way light hits the, the, the watch as well as proportion. I think proportion is something that is often overlooked and not really considered. Um, and I think when you look at a lot of the, uh, sort of emerging micro brands today, it's the watches are fully specced out. Everyone knows what the best materials are. However, you know it's it's uh, it's how all those materials and all the uh, all the measurements come together that really I think at the end of the day is the difference between a really nicely designed watch versus just a watch. Let me let me chime in here because again I'm I nerd out about design. I don't claim to be a designer, but I'm probably a one of the world's most authorities on dissecting watch design and critiquing watch design. And I have come to those conclusions about materials and surfaces and light and proportions, you know, independently. No one taught me. I just had to look at an awful lot of watches and use a bit of an analytical mind. You said something interesting that people don't think about it. Now, clearly, if you're very deep into enthusiast watches, um, very high-end watches, the whole culture is thinking about that. So where was it that you were coming from uh, that nothing like that was discussed? Was that not discussed in school? Like, just help un- help people understand in what context are those things not discussed? Yeah, so I think that it, it, when, in, in terms of watches specifically, 
the, the way I like to tell uh, or talk to young watch designers um, is you look at the watch not in actual size. Imagine that you are an insect. Imagine you're an insect. And when you're an insect, the watch is essentially the size of like a car. You know, and when you look at a car, when humans look at a car, it's an object that's obviously much <laughs> larger than we are. But then within that object is, I mean, hundreds of different materials. Now, obviously, um, you know, relatively speaking, um, watch, watches, well, it can on the higher end side of things when, when uh, movement design comes into play on the, of the luxury brands. But in terms of just pure watch design, when it comes to form, uh, if you are an insect and you look at a, let's say something like an index, an applied index, well, that index can be, I mean, there are a million different combinations. You can take a rectangular in the index and shape it to where, you know, in, in actuality, it can appear like a completely different shape just based on the angles that you place on it. Like I said, the finishing that you place on it. Well, this, I think that amount of detail coming from an industrial design background when what uh you 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 don't think at that sort of like uh micro level that's why they call it micro mechanical engineering exactly exactly i mean i think i think when you're talking millimeters when when we're having discussions on hey (laughs) we need it we need to reduce this size by 0.1 millimeter i mean there is a difference there you know and there, there is there is yeah so it sounds like it's really an exercise in interior design and architecture on a different scale. But you mm-hmm. know, using the sort of insect analogy, what they're basically saying is imagine you're making a room inside of a building for something which is a different scale. And it's got to look good if mm-hmm. you were an organism that could interact with it like it was a building. Even though it's a building for them, you're wearing it on the wrist, but it has to look good as a building in a room before it looks good as a small object. Is that sort of what they're, what, what's going on? Yes, I would say so. Yeah, and if, we're, if you were to imagine the room as being the, the surface of the dial and underneath the crystal, that little tiny little space there, then yes, absolutely. And the building around it, the case of the watch is the building. Yeah, that, I would say that that's a pretty accurate analogy there. And people, you know, your, your, your layperson their eyes will sort of gloss over if you start getting the nuances of nanometric differences and finishing differences on a watch dial. But if you if you talk about things like interior design, then they start to understand, well, if I'm in a room with this light or this paint, or if the if the you know the, the chairs are arranged this way, it looks very different. We've all been in rooms with a similar amount of stuff that looks great or terrible. So it's it's like we can appreciate on that level. Though it's sort of like in watches, there's all these levels of abstraction. Um, what do you think can sort of bridge that gap for a lot of the people, sort of the, the the new watch designers that are sort of you know the generation coming out now after you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that uh, from the time that I was designing watches, um, I think what's really interesting is that uh, the industry at that time in the fashion watch space, uh, especially. They were very experimental. I mean, you're talking about using uh, various different types of plastics and mixed materials and uh, ceramics and titanium. I mean, it was it was actually really fun to be a watch designer. Um, and I think throughout the years, 
uh, I think uh, watch enthusiasts, their tastes have become a little bit more refined, I would say. Um, and I think with the emergence of, uh, or I, I should say, the, the ability to, for anyone to sign, uh, log on to the internet, find a supplier, uh, say, hey, I want 316L stainless steel, sapphire crystal, you know, the whole gamut of specs that kind of quote unquote make a quality watch. I think that what has happened is the difference between um, then and now, it really just kind of comes down to, hey, let's, let's look at form. Let's look at, you know, what has been done throughout, what has been done in the past and understanding that at the end of the day, you have to look at what, what people, people are looking for something different. And really different doesn't necessarily mean you have to make something like, you know, something totally whack, wackadoodle. <laughs> let, 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 let's talk about the manufacturing side of things. Mm -hmm. This is something that I find interesting. And my suspicion is that, you know, several years from now, there is going to be a very different type of, of context. And what I mean by that is today, you can still go to factories, one or more, that can make the parts for you, the dials, the hands, the cases, the bracelets, the movements, of course, and, and some of them can do everything plus assemble it for you. Now, I am interested to know what that's going to look like in five to 10 years. Because again, in, historically speaking, if you were part of a big group, Movado, Fossil Group, you had a lot of your own manufacturing, you had economies of scale, you had the ability to make stuff that you know n a smaller company couldn't do because you didn't have the buying power or the connections. In more recent years, the democratization which has been available in watchmaking, meaning you can go to suppliers yourself with a relatively small budget, has allowed people to start brands, um, not out of nothing, but out of investments that doesn't require anything other than some investment in inventory, some marketing, you don't have to buy machines, you don't have to start a factory, you know, none of that stuff is necessary. Um, talk a little bit about why that status quo is so important to you just being able to get started with Jack Mason. And do you see that going? Do you see that changing? Do you think that in five to 10 years, uh, that manufacturing uh, capacity will still be available? Yeah, I think that it will be available. And in fact, I think that, um, that, that this is the part, if I were to be perfectly honest with you, is a little bit, um, I don't want to say worrisome, but I think it will be, the waters will get even uh, more muddy um, because it's just becoming easier um, to contact a supplier, go through a catalog of uh, components, um, select what you, what you like or what you think a customer likes, throw all together, slap a logo on it and call it a day. Um, I think that, um, however, if you are specifically targeting the watch enthusiast, I've learned um, over the last few years, the enthusiasts are very, very smart. They know what has been done. They know what are knockoffs. They know, um, or, or I should say homage, right? Um, and they form, shape, function, like all these things have kind of, been seen. I think if you are, if, and this is what I was trying to say earlier, if you are trying to go after a watch enthusiast, I believe that um, in order to be different, you you should and you should put the energy and um, investment into creating original 
components. So for example, hands. Uh, I mean, coming from the design side, you can literally go through a book of thousands and thousands and thousands of hand that have been done before. And, and in fact, it's kind of funny because I've looked through a catalog before and I've seen the own hands that I've, that I've designed years and years ago. However, it, I, I, I really, I'm a strong believer that when you put in the time and energy and, uh, investment into creating something original, it is noticed. And when you put those pieces together, uh, with, um, sort of the, the design proportion that I was talking about earlier, putting those all, all that entire complete package together, it really does stand out. And one of the things that, you know, what we take pride in, in, in Jack Mason is exactly that. Yes, we, you know, started, um, in a fashion world, but throughout over the last six years, uh, we've evolved quite a bit and we are headed in a direction um, that that actually caters even more uh, towards the, towards these enthusiasts understanding okay where wh- how has the industry shifted in terms of product development and how do we continue to push the envelope and actually reach newer heights um, through whether it be design uh, you know brand experience I think experience comes into in, in, into play here uh, when it comes to um, trying to be different as a watch company. Uh, it, it goes beyond the watch itself. So let's talk a little bit about this sort of issue with the consumer. You said something interesting. They're very, very smart. Um, mm-hmm. And it is true that to a large degree, this industry has relied on people not knowing what something is you know, worth, so to say, how much it costs to make, if the design is original or copied, uh, who came up with the look to begin with. And with the internet... I'm not saying everybody knows everything, but there's a lot less smoke and mirrors. How did that impact the discussion around your brand when it started? Because you sort of started the brand very much in the era of high high transparency. How did that impact some of the decisions you made? Yes, it impacted it. It, it impacted quite a bit. Um, back in 2015, uh, when we launched the brand, we knew exactly who we were targeting. We were targeting the customer who walks into a department store. Uh, you know, Nordstrom uh, was actually our first account, which was a huge, huge accomplishment um, on on our part, the team. Um, and at that time, you know, we knew exactly who we were going for, and I knew that I knew how the product could stand out uh, from a design and, and quality standpoint. Um, and that I, I think. Again, that we're talking about six years ago, uh, where the where the customer wasn't as educated, I would say, um, in differentiating quality, uh, uh, or, or I, sh- I should like you know quality is subjective, but um, un- you know understanding premium materials, even understanding costs and uh, things of that nature. And back in 2020, we actually. Uh, this made a huge decision in the company to pivot from uh, being and you know, going coming from a wholesale model, and we pivoted to going direct to consumer. And the reason why we did that is because we wanted uh, wanted to be closer to the customer. We wanted brand control. That was something we didn't have uh, in our uh, former business model, and 
the reason why we made that move was so that we were closer in tune with what our customers actually wanted from us, um, what they liked, what they uh, what they didn't like, uh, more importantly. And uh, we combated that problem that began to form when we didn't have as much brand control being in wholesale channels um, by going direct to consumer. And, um, you know, since then, we have been able to uh, really get in tune with our own customers and the community and grow a community to where they, um, you know, we're getting direct feedback from them. And so uh, I think that has paid off big time uh, for us. And, um, you know, as we acquire new customers, we're actually trying, making a, uh, an even bigger effort to try and grow that community and get even deeper into, into them. And the way we're doing that is creating these experiences. Um, and um, we actually just opened up a retail store. Um, it, it is a, it's a pop-up actually here in Dallas. And Talk about it. Yeah. So we, um, we operate, uh, we've always operated in, um, in a really cool type of environment. Uh, there's a little part of Dallas here. Um, our headquarters was out of, uh, based out of called Deep Ellum. Uh, there was a lot of, um, culture there. There was, you know, arts and music and, and food. And it was just a really great community to be a part of. And we've always had a showroom there and we, you know, we learned that our customers love to come and hang out with us and just talk watches. And a lot of our customers at that time uh, were first-time watch buyers. And what we learned from that was, hey, I think we are. I think we can actually have a store. And not only can we have a store, um, you know, I think we can actually create an experience, a different experience of watch buying, where it's not about a transactional relationship to where you walk into a storefront, you have product just lined up on shelves along the walls, customer comes in, I like this, you know, you're, you're, uh, <laughs> I'm going to pay for it and then goodbye. It wasn't about that. Even though we were, you know, selling sub $1,000 product, if you provide an experience for a customer where you get to sit down with, uh, with the team or even myself, someone who actually designed the product, the what something interesting starts to happen that that relationship starts to form to where when they start understanding you know the the people behind the product when they start understanding the environment that they're in it's a full brand immersion it it, it uh, all of a sudden it's no longer even about the watch i mean i'll sit with a customer for you know 45 minutes an hour sometimes and by then we formed a personal relationship and that watch in a way sometimes symbolizes that time we had together. Yeah, there's a memory and emotion associated with it then. And that's what, you know, that's why people have their sentimental watches, their graduation watches, their retirement watches, their marriage watches. Um, you know, people associate very strong emotions with watches in ways that they don't necessarily do a pair of shoes or a car or a book or some other type of gift or item. Absolutely. And I think that's a huge thing that that I've uh, personally learned uh, through this journey is we started off as creating a good looking watch, but throughout the years, we've actually created a brand. And what this brand represents is like at the end of the day, when someone puts on a watch, I don't care if it's a $60 watch or a six, you know, $60,000 watch, 
it means something to that individual. And you, you kind of form this alter ego. Um, this is something, this is direct feedback we've, you know, we've received from our customers. It's like, Hey, actually uh, a review that comes to mind is one customer was like, Hey, I bought this watch. And every time I wear this watch, I feel like I'm driving a Porsche, you know, and that really stuck with me because it's like, wow. I mean, I would think we make great quality product, but if it evokes that kind of emotion, that's something really special. And so Jack Mason, you know, as a brand, we really want to lean into that and stand for something that goes beyond the product itself, where it's like, hey, okay, we may be able to be a brand that uh, allows customers to feel the best version of themselves. You know, and I think that that is something that goes beyond the whole, the world of watches. And, and now you're starting to form a brand uh, that people can get behind. Now, let's talk about this notion of brand, because companies that make watches um, are sometimes amazing brands, sometimes not so amazing brands. The, the sort of quality of the brand isn't necessarily related to the quality of the product. Brand is a personality, if you will. And I, I love brands. I think you also love brands. But building a brand is a completely different job than building a product. You have to build a product and you have to build a brand that sits next to it. Of course, there's integration between the two. But as someone who's a creative director um, and who has an industrial design background, where did you gain those elements that allowed you to become a brand builder? Because I, I, I'd like to think that those are very different skills, even though sometimes the same people can do that. Yes, it is a very different skill. And it wasn't a skill that I knew uh, from day one. Um, as you know, it was very obvious that I'm an industrial design person. And for me, I thought I can just get away with designing a nice product and, you know, call it a day. Uh, but, you know, that, that can only go so far. Um, there is a certain point where you have to stand for something. And I think that when you actually make the effort to get in tune with your customers, ask them why they like your product, you'll be really surprised and, um, just hearing what they say. Any um, examples? Some, yeah. So, you know, we, one particular example that actually um, really stuck with me throughout the years was uh, there was a gentleman who uh, purchased one of our watches, submitted a review um, and said, uh, hey, I lost, uh, I lost my job. Uh, you know, I've been unemployed for a while. However, the little money that we ha I had left, um, I decided I wanted to, uh, buy one of your watches. Um, it was a price point that, you know, really that, that I was comfortable with. And when, uh, uh, when, when he, when he received the watch, he was saying that it gave him the confidence, um, and, uh, energy to go and find a new job. And he got that new job. And for me, when I heard that, I was like, kind of, it kind of blew my mind in a way that, um, I didn't even know that the product that we create can stand for something like that. And so uh, that's when that's when I first started thinking, oh, we can actually became, become a real brand. And to me, you know, brand is like, okay, what do you stand for? What's your story? What's your reason of uh, reason for existing? You know, if, if take the watches away, if you were to remove the watches, what does Jack Mason stand for? And I think that that is something that's an exercise that, I have to constantly go through because brands evolve, you know, and I think um, you have to understand the more you're in tune with your customers, 
I think just you're just better off in the long run. Um, and they're the ones who kind of shape, uh, you know, shape who you are and where you're headed. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. You can buy your wristwatches elsewhere, but at the Blog to Watch store, you can celebrate your watch collecting hobby with high quality original products. The Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at Blog to Watch. We also carry some incredible art that will grate on your walls, letting everyone know about your watch collecting enthusiasm. The bespoke yet affordable products which the Blog to Watch store carries have been designed and curated by the Blog to Watch editorial team. We ship internationally and right now are offering free global FedEx priority shipping on every shirt and watch pouch. We add new products all the time, so be sure to check out store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Now, I want to make a distinction point here because I agree with everything you're saying, but I think part of it is because we're both Americans and sort of grew Mm -hmm. up with the sort of American approach to brands. And I think that America is one of the most sophisticated places in the world for brands and brand development. And so I I find it interesting that you, you learned about what a beautiful watch looks like ostensibly from the Swiss and they know they're, 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 they're good teachers to that, but they don't do a very good job of teaching you about brands. In fact, mm-hmm. a, a lot of the, the best Swiss watch brands, um, are not really good in the branding department <laughs> to be perfectly honest. There's a couple of good ones. Uh, Rolex does it. But the funny thing is that Rolex, in my opinion, has to spend so much more money to get something that if done in a different way, they could get for less. Like it's great that they have it, but they literally throw huge amounts of money at the problem. Other Swiss watch brands, uh, even some of them throw huge amounts of money, but they just haven't really figured out brand. And I have some theories why, but I wanted to know sort of your experience where you said, okay, they're, they're really good about teaching me how to make the watch, but I'm looking for advice on branding and uh, it's, it, it's strange or maybe I'm not getting what I'm looking for. Um, talk about some of those interesting distinctions between you know the sort of Swiss versus American mentality of these things. Yeah, sure. So I think this was uh, something that I've learned is that uh, they they have history, they have the legacy, and I think that in a way, in the same way that I knew when uh, we launched Jack Mason, we couldn't rely on the brand name. It I think the Swiss is they are a brand, and so I think from that standpoint, there is a level of well, I don't have to care about brand or you know brand identity or a mission statement because, you know, we're Swiss and we make watches and the whole world knows we're the best at doing that. Um, and I think that, you know, from, uh, especially in America with, uh, especially in the last uh, decade or so when, uh, you know, direct to consumer brands, whether, no matter what industry you're in, no matter what product category there with all the social movements that's been going on and, um, just different areas of um, interest. You you see more companies actually stand for something, and I think that you know that's something that I've kind of witnessed on the sidelines as we were uh, sort of evolving as a brand. Was okay, you know. I take. I mean, I live and breathe this brand. Uh, when I go to sleep at night, I'm constantly thinking about. Uh, okay, how do we how do we do things better? You know, we we know how to make watches. We can always make a watch better, but 
what what goes on beyond that. And I think that um, there there's definitely influence uh, just from being in this market alone. To your point, um, that truly you know shapes the way uh, brands go. And I think that uh, it's challenging because oftentimes you're you're compared, you're under the microscope. Um, compared and compared to other brands, it's like, hey, well, this brand is doing this. They stand for this. Why don't you do that? You know, and it's it's that that part, that part of the business is is very challenging. Um, but you know, that's when you have to dig deeper. At least I do. Uh, right. Dig deeper and really <laughs> try, try to understand what what gets you up, what makes you uh, want to go into work and uh, go about your day. And, um, you know, as, as a brand owner, you get hit with a lot more criticism than you do, you know, praise, if you will, you know, and yeah, <laughs> I um, know, you know, like, uh, <laughs> I think what, what's the uh, prevailing wisdom? Don't read the comments. I mean, this is, yeah. this is actually important wisdom. Well, I want to ask sort of on a, on a practical perspective, on a day-to-day basis, based upon what you do, what I'm hearing is that you're applying efforts to the product as well as the brand. And, and, and again, this is there, there's no sort of stupid answer here. Like, what do you do to build the brand? I mean, is it make nicer boxes? Is it making T-shirts? Is it interior design for the store? Is it nicer ads? Is it mm-hmm. ambassadors and things like that? Is it all of the other? Like, talk a little bit about practically what does yep. it mean to work on building the brand? Yeah. So that's a really good question. And I, I think that, and I can only answer that from obviously um, just me being me. Um, You know, I always thought that uh, me joining the or entering the watch industry from a design and creative side was absolutely perfect because my personally, I'm very detail oriented. Um, I am a product and brand guy. And what that practically means is, okay, product looks great. Well, what is the product package in that, you know, as you were saying, what is, what does that packaging look like? Every touch point that you have with a customer, what are they seeing? What are they hearing? What are they smelling? Uh, you know, even in our store, you know, there's a candle that we want to constantly, constantly, uh, uh, light, you know, and that is all part of the experience. And consistency is the biggest thing. And the number one thing that I, pay a lot of attention to and uh, talk to my team about as well is I don't care if it's an email an ad. uh, I don't care if it's uh, even one little Instagram post, you know, what's the copy? What is it saying? What is uh, the voice and tone? Is the music consistent with, uh, you know, things that we've done in the past? I think consistency is what really makes the brand you know, stand out from the rest because like for me, an example that I like to use is it doesn't matter what McDonald's you go into the world, right? In the world, it's always going to be the exact same experience. And so, and I think that's what makes it, you know, one of the most globally recognized uh, brands out there. And so, you know, when you, for me, especially, I look at what the greats do and not just in the watch world. And I, I pay attention to these things like Apple, for example, you know, the product is beautiful. No one can argue that. But the moment you step by, step inside to the store, uh, the way the product is merchandised, the way the product is displayed, the way the people that work in the store talk to you, that, that transaction experience, to the moment you go and uh, take the product home, open the box, 
you know, how is the product presented in the box, uh, after sales service, you know, customer experience, like all of that really comes together. Um, and, um, you know, from a practical standpoint, um, and that's what defines a brand. So I want to talk about the other end of the spectrum, because before I talked about, you know, some of the amazing Swiss brands that make beautiful products, but just have like really no brand to speak of. But at the other side of the spectrum is something else interesting, and that is all branding, but almost nothing in product. And what comes to mind a little bit, at least over the last 10 years or so, are the the Daniel Wellingtons of the world and some of these brands that erupted on social media with just all brand, no substance. Um, and that actually took them kind of far. They hit a limit and they stopped. And a lot of those guys are really not doing it, everything. But, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about your opinions on brands, especially in the watch space, that's so hyper-focused on brand and image and perception and emotion to the, to the neglect <laughs> of the product. Um, I guess that what I want to hear you say is confirmation that it's not one or the other. It's product and brand, which is important. You can't do both yeah. if you want any longevity in the space. Yes, 100%. And um, yes, the Daniel Wellingtons of the world, the MVMTFs of the world. I have a high amount of respect for these companies because uh, they understood exactly what they were doing. Um, and I think their timing was impeccable um, uh, when they entered the market and knew the that space, the, the social media space especially. Uh, I think they were experts in influencer marketing, creating a lifestyle. Um, and ultimately, you know, they, I think that they are what I would like to say they are uh, marketing companies. They're marketing companies and they're using watches as a vehicle to market their brand. Um, and I think that that has, when, when that snowballs, um, as it, as it, you know, evidently did, you know, you reach a point where, it doesn't matter what you sell them. It doesn't matter what you sell your customer base. They're going to buy into it because for whatever reason, they are buying into that lifestyle. They want to be a part of it. And I think that's, um, if, if, if that was their end goal, then kudos to them. Like I said, I, I think that they did an excellent job, uh, from that standpoint. Um, and their end goal probably may never have been, you know, to create a, you know, a watch of, uh, high value. Um, I think that for Jack Mason, if I, if I were to speak for Jack Mason, it's kind of taking uh, examples like that and honestly taking a page out of some of these guys' books. And to your point, uh, as w when you asked the question was, what is that balance? You know, because in my experience, we've, we've tipped both ways, actually. When we focus too much about product, the it's it's really interesting the customers the criticism the feedback that you get is very much about product and and while that's okay i'm you know in the background understanding hey they, they, a lot of this feedback actually has more to do with the product and then you go to the brand side and when you go on the brand side you know there's marketing that follows that and when you uh invest and spend money on digital advertising, digital marketing, you, you're just another ad, right, in your newsfeed. And then all of a sudden, if you are um, appearing on a whole group of people uh, and their, their newsfeed, then you're, you're, you're seeing it over and over and over again. Well, then 
now all of a sudden, oh, they are trying to be this uh, this marketing company. And so we've tipped both ways. And now uh, I think we've, or at least I have finally understood what that balance is. And so, um, you know, going into uh, the back half of this year and into the next and, you know, and onward, um, I have a very clear understanding of who we need to be and um, where I feel like we can go. Um, and it took six years to, to understand that. So let's talk about the emotions that you want to sort of imbue uh, with the products. And you said earlier that you were very surprised by some of the reasons that, that consumers get it. And it makes me think about, again, in the larger industry, brands who for years have consistently marketed to the wrong demographic, where people that like that race aren't into their products, or people that like that sports don't really care. But they would love to think that people uh, in that space like it. And I think that most brands wouldn't be terribly flattered by learning some of the more de- detailed, uh, you know, like demographics about who buys their stuff. Um, and, and I think about why that is. And again, I'm sort of getting to an interesting point here, but it's sort of like this. If you make a watch for like rich people, chances are that rich people aren't going to be the first people getting it. It's going to be people that want to be rich, want to look like they're rich. Actual rich people are going to get something that they think is sort of older and more established. It's sort of like everybody wants to get something which is a little bit better than how they perceive themselves, right? So you're building a watch aiming for something higher, but the people who are buying your watch are excited about sort of where you're at. And I know it's a lot of complicated psychology, but sort of help explain the sort of intersection on who you think you're making watches for and then who ends up actually buying them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's one of the hardest lessons that uh, that we've learned um, was in the early stages of the brand uh, and the company. You know, I believe that uh, we were creating products at that fashion, in that fashion watch space of superior quality. Um, for a while, we were the number one or number two brand at Borgstrom and a lot of these department stores because our timing at that time was, was, was right. And I think that that's what helped us, uh, have the success uh, that we had at that time. And, but then the industry shifted. The fashion watch space, as you know, kind of took a nosedive and things changed. And what, uh, what what ended up happening was uh, there's a lot of discounting that started happening. Their uh, just product quality kind of gradually got worse. Um, in a lot of other brands, um, I've you know personally took a stance and never uh, sacrificed our quality. In fact, every year since our our existence, we've pumped more quality uh, into the product. Um, but we kept going after the same customer. And so the issue with that is, you know, we're, we're, we're small, you're, we're small fish in a big pond. And when that, that customer who's fishing <laughs> in that pond, they have a certain, uh, it's, 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 it's the customer that walks into a Macy's, for example, right. And, and they see a certain type of product quality. Well, if we're sitting there next to, actually, we were never in Macy's, so that's actually not a great example. But if we're sitting next to uh, these brands um, at a similar price point, the, the the quality of the product is actually very, uh, it's overlooked. 
So we were actually um, utilizing sapphire crystals across the board, you know, solid uh, case back, solid bracelet links, you know, everything that you kind of see in my brands today. Um, we were doing that, uh, you know, four or five years ago in that space, um, but it wasn't it wasn't understood. And so um, then we, you know, started to understand, okay, maybe that's not our customer. So then when you try to go after sort of the rich people, um, as you, you know, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, well, <laughs> they, they're, they're like, hey, stop trying to be somebody you're not. And um, just, you know, just kind of, you know, we have our Swiss watches. So just, you, you know, you don't, you don't need to do that. And so that's sort of the feedback that we've gotten along the way, to be honest with you. And so now we're headed in a direction to where, you know, we are taking kind of the best of both worlds. And I think that we can be a brand that has an offering for watch enthusiasts of all levels. And we're doing that by um, offering a wider uh, range of uh, price points, um, something that's very affordable. Um, I know affordable is kind of uh, subjective, but we're talking about, you know, we're still talking about sub 1000. Um, sub so 2000 um, at the most, but I think that uh, we can have different types of movement offerings, uh, whether that be Japanese, Swiss, automatic, you know, quartz. I think that that's, I think that's the future, um, to be honest with you. It's, it used to be, hey, you got to be strictly Japanese or hey, you have to be uh, Swiss only. I don't think that's the case anymore, especially with the emergence of all these microbrands there it's it's just a really interesting time right now to be in this uh industry and and yeah that's that's kind of the direction that jack mason's added in is to be able to offer product uh for enthusiasts of all levels i want to talk about this sort of tendency to go up market and i noticed that this happens a lot not with every brand but it happens so much of the time that i sort of get concerned by it and the idea is that brands feel that they want to sort of constantly go up market, up market. Like, we can be better. We can be better. And within a few years, sometimes their average price point can double, if not quadruple. And they're thinking, oh, well, you know, we're making better watches now uh, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But at the end of the day, they're, they're really sometimes abandoning um, a, a consumer base and then trying to find an entirely different consumer base. Has Jack Mason had this this sort of, like, momentum to increase the price point? Have you stepped back and say, no, I want to sort of continue to sell. I'm just curious how, how that, that, that comes into play, because I think you'll agree there is this tendency to increase the price point as opposed to decrease or have it stable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that's actually a really great point. Um, and yes, um, we've experienced quite a bit. Um, there has been, uh, you know, price resistance. Um, and I think that, and I know I mentioned microbrands uh, numerous times, um, during this conversation, but they have, I think that they've made a bigger impact than um, they've anticipated uh, because these cons consumers, they know that they can get a, uh, let's, let's call it a, you know, a high level, uh, you know, dot, let's say dive watch because everyone knows everyone has to have a dive watch, but you're talking ceramic bezel, you know, 200 meter water resistance, double dome sapphire crystal, you know, the whole shebang. Uh, for, you know, $400. And if you are a company and a brand like we are, it is really tough to compete with something like that 
especially if you're trying to actually make enough profit to reinvest into marketing, reinvest to reinvest into brand experience, you know, and that sort of thing. And what we ended up uh, learning uh, through uh, through the years is, I mean, I'll be fully transparent. We've adjusted prices prices uh, a lot of times. We've done it many, many times um, just to see if we can find that sweet spot. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's less about the, if you play the, the, the value uh, kind of uh, uh, the prop value product value proposition game it is very dangerous. And I think that um, if you are able to have something for whoever, I think you have to pay respects to your origins is what I'm trying to get at is keep that customer base. And, and, but you can you can introduce higher level product, more expensive product, because if you are able to cater towards your current loyal customer base and grow trust and and continue to provide an experience that they can enjoy, they're more than likely going to buy into your uh, you know higher price point items or you know what you would call quote unquote uh, just higher quality. Uh, they're and and it's happened. I'm I'm seeing it happen right now. Um, so, and on on the other side, um, you know, when we have adjusted prices in the past, yes. And this is just this was a hard lesson to learn. Uh, we have abandoned customers, and that was just something that's just part of the entrepreneurial journey. You kind of learn by those hard mistakes, and what you um, and I think the difference is. If you care about the longevity of your brand, you you have to understand why they are upset. And I've actually I got on the phone. I called, uh, you know, uh, a lot of our past customers. Either whether they've uh, sent emails with uh, frustration, left bad reviews, you know, things of that nature. I personally called them, and more often than not, if you just have a conversation with these customers. And understand from their point of view on like, you know, what, what, you know, what their frustrations are. You, you're more than likely going to be able to retain that customer. And that's, that's been my experience so far. Now, in terms of the further pursuit of quality and the further pursuit of branding, you use the term Americana, which I thought was, you know, quite wise because that defines where I think there's a big need. But where do you, where do you continue to go? Where does Jack Mason go next? We're sort of almost out of time here. You have, a store, a pop-up store, maybe there'll be a permanent place. If you want to be a big company or you want to continue, again, I'm not sure what the goals are. I'm sure there's some some level you guys want to get to. I don't know if you're looking to sell or you just want to you know, have the business go forever. Hopefully you want to continue running it for uh, as long as possible. But talk a little bit about where you want to do that, right? You've been seeing the world change. You have a certain amount of money you can invest, not a, not not an impossible amount. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different directions to go in. To some degree, you can't be a follower. You have to sort of buck the trend a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not saying that what you say has to be a promise, but talk a little bit about some of the conversations that you're having internally about where to go next in terms of branding, sales, marketing, product, um, all the important stuff. Sure. So, you know, I, I think that... Um, in if I were to you know if I were to be completely transparent um, as an entrepreneur um, in the beginning, yes, you are you know I had aspirations of 
building a brand, understanding the market at that time, building a brand and um, creating value within the brand and then, you know, selling the brand um, and, you know, move on to the next thing as entrepreneurs do. However, I think that I've just grown personal relationships um, because of the personal relationships I've grown with customers. Um, I started to, it, it, it opened my eyes a little more. And, um, you know, if, if there's a road, right, for Jack Mason, I'm now looking further down the road as opposed to where's my exit off the road. And what I've come to realize is that, you know, let, let's, let, I began to ask myself, why not? And what I mean by that is I believe that, um, that Jack Mason can be a legacy brand uh, here in Texas. And those are my personal aspirations. Um, and internally, uh, we have this clear cut vision of becoming that brand and establishing ourselves as a legacy household name uh, here in Texas. I think that, you know, there's opportunity there. I, I think that um, the way we go about doing that is actually, um, and we're currently in the works of being uh, transitioning into bringing uh, assembly here stateside in America. Um, and we are actually working on uh, an upcoming pro uh, a product that, uh, that will kind of be our first foray um, into that transition. Um, and, you know, if I were to kind of, you know, dream bigger, um, I don't see why we can't have, you know, designed and assembled in Texas. You know, I, I just think that the customers, our community have allowed me to think bigger. You know, I, it's my job to think big uh, at, at Jack Mason. And um, just when you think that you've thought big enough, if you continue to listen to your customers, it, I, th I think that it, it, it opens your mind up even more. And so they've allowed me to dream bigger and um, see further down the road, as I said, and, uh, and, and, and see if we can, uh, we can hit those goals. Peter, thank you so much for talking about Jack Mason. Just before we leave, tell everyone where the website is and uh, any other place you want them to go to check out your work. Of course. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, our website is www.jackmasonbrand.com. Uh, we also have social uh, media channels on Instagram, uh, Facebook. Uh, we actually just started TikTok. And uh, yeah, on there, you can find all sorts of updates. We're very good about uh, uploading content and um, announcements of any sort of exciting news coming in here in the new near future. So uh, there's a lot of exciting things ahead to, to be on the lookout for. Thank you so much. This has been Superlative Podcast with my guest, Peter Cho of Jack Mason Watches. Peter, thank you so much. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit a blog2watch.com.